<laughs> Hello. It's good to be here looking at God's Word with you this morning. We're going to continue our sermon series in the, looking at the Beatitudes. You'll notice in your order of worship a note there. <clears throat> the Beatitudes are a collection of sayings by Jesus. And as hopefully you know by now, if you've been here, they are called the Beatitudes because of their formula, each starting with blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And as we'll see this morning, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. These blessings that Jesus speaks uh, offer us a a path, a, a way of being. And so what we've been wanting to reflect on is not only do these blessings tell us more about who Jesus is, but the path that he invites his followers to walk in. And it's a chance then for us to examine our lives, to examine kind of our inner life, but also how we go about our day and use our resources and as a way to help try to see ourselves, the contra- often contrast is, is best. And so we're contrasting the Beatitudes with the traditional vices. Pride, envy, vainglory, sloth, greed, lust, wrath, and gluttony. For example, last week we looked at hunger and thirsting for righteousness in contrast with sloth. Having an apathy towards the good. And today we'll contrast giving mercy with greed for getting. Contrast giving mercy with a greed, a greed for getting. It's a chance for us to look at these different ways within our hearts or within the world and ask which way brings life, which way will bring us life before God. So let's look at our passage. This, it's in your order of worship. We're going to look at Matthew 5 to hear this beatitude, and then we'll go to Matthew 18 to hear a story that Jesus tells about mercy. You can follow in your order of worship or in your Bible. And Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Then Matthew 18, Then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him that debt. And when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. 
This is God's word given for our good. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for gathering us and calling us here in your, your presence. We thank you also for your word, that you are not silent, that we are not on our own to seek out finding our own ways. We thank you for the revelation of Christ and of your word. We pray that we would receive it in faith and that by your spirit you would change us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've been doing in this series, this sermon is going to have two parts. The first part will be to look at the Matthew 5 verse just about the beatitude and to compare mercy and greed. And then we'll look at the second part of the sermon. We'll look at the story in Matthew 18 and see how there is a connection. There's a connection between God's mercy and our giving mercy. So first, let's look at the comparison between greed for getting and the giving of mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. In contrast to giving mercy, there is greed, greed for getting. Greed is a word that we are familiar with, I'm, I'm sure. But as we reflect on it, as we kind of understand this kind of the way it works in us or in the world, greed is a way of being that gives rise to excessive acquisition. Excessive acquisition or excessive hoarding, holding on to money or possessions. And both those aspects are important, the acquiring, always wanting more, or the holding, not wanting to release what you have. Greed is a temptation for us all. It's for the miser, for the one who wants to keep things close. It's to hold what should be given away. On the other side, disregarding questions of need or questions of contentment, one can engage in excessive you know, gathering, endlessly seeking more, whether for luxury or status or a sense of security. And either way, the scriptures invite us to see this holding what we should give away or this constant grabbing of more as a path that does not lead to life, as a way of being a thief, grabbing, grabbing, or holding Along with identifying this accumulating or holding scripture highlights this idea that greed is attractive to us because it offers us so much. It offers a great deal. It makes great promises inviting us to trust. We know this, right? The thought of us holding it or grabbing more things offers the promise of self-sufficiency, offers us the promise of security, of control, of maybe having a sense that I'm okay. It has a lot that it offers. There was an article recently that I saw titled, Who Actually Feels Satisfied About Money? Who Actually Feels Satisfied About Money? And the article reads, The rich are just like you and me. They're broke. Or at least they think they are not rich. It continues, Try to wrap your head around this stat. According to one survey, just 13% of millionaires think of themselves as wealthy. And what's more, the same study found that even members, number of members of those who have $5 million or more, identify as not rich. And the article is asking, how can that be? Well, it turns out, the article suggests, that a big factor is one's perception. How we compare to the Joneses, or how they compare to our neighbors, or how we compare to those that we hold up as who we want to be like or better than. 
And that article is fascinating, but one of the things, the reason I mention it, it points to the elusive nature of money. The elusive nature of wealth. It offers a lot. It promises a lot. But those promises are elusive. And you know this, and I know this. There is never quite enough. We could always have a little bit more. There's always you know, a little bit more that I would like to find or acquire. There's always you know, one more investment, one more purchase, one more addition to the amount that I make. Always thinking that when that arrives, then that security will be there. See, greed is about always grabbing or, or holding. It's about hearing and trusting these promises. But one of the things that Scripture points to over and over again about greed is its deceptive nature. There is a deceptiveness to it. While it offers these things, it falls short of delivering on them. There is only the illusion of control, the illusion of being able to avoid any changes that we don't want to face. It's the illusion of a security blanket that things are okay. 1 Timothy reads, We brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into a false hope, bringing ruin and destruction for themselves. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The way of greed offers happiness, but it brings fear. It offers control, but obsesses over not having enough. And so if greed is expressed in this excessive desire to get what we do not have, or an excessive desire to have more and more, or a clutching and keeping what we do have, then the opposite virtues, the opposite of greed, are contentment or generosity, or we'll focus on this morning, giving mercy to others. We can think of places in Scripture that speak about this generosity, this opposite of greed, where it says, Scripture says, God loves a cheerful giver, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. One of those favorite verses for Christmas morning, right? Wealth enables one to practice the virtue of of generously giving away what you have. Scripture calls us to give at least 10% of what we have, an act of protest against the world that would want to define ourselves and our future based in money. The greed promises happiness. It promises control, but it cannot deliver because the deepest happiness Jesus wants us to see, the, the deepest blessing, comes from knowing God and knowing God's mercy. The alternative to greed for getting is giving mercy. Mercy, like greed, is a word that we're familiar with, I imagine. But when we consider mercy, if we think about it for very long, we realize it is a depth of mystery, a mystery. Think at its core, mercy goes beyond justice. Mercy goes beyond what is right or wrong. It goes beyond the law or a code, whether it's God's or someone else's. It goes beyond those things. Another way I say this is that greed always falls short of justice. Greed is less than justice, but mercy is more than justice. It is a gift, an undeserved gift. It is a grace from God. And think about how mercy would speak into our situations. One author writes, where justice says punish, Mercy says forgive. 
where justice says this is a debt that must be repaid. Mercy says not that there is no debt, but rather that the debt should be dismissed. Where the law lacks power, mercy has the power to transform and to change. Now all the Beatitudes are fully expressed in the person of Jesus, and mercy is the same. We can think about how mercy is displayed throughout the scriptures and the old and new. The scriptures consistently present God's mercy as manifest in his saving his people and his forgiveness, his deliverance, his restoring us from exile, his hesed, meaning steadfast or loving kindness. In these cases, when mercy is described, mercy has an aspect to it where there was one being moved, that God himself is even described as being moved in his guts, in his heart, that Jesus was moved because the people were helpless. The scripture speaks of God in this way, that his heart went out, that his heart broke for the people. This inward feeling, this inward state, though, in mercy leads to action. See it in Jesus' ministry, the giving of sight to the blind, the healing of the leper, the teaching of the ignorant or the foolish, the feeding of the hungry, the raising of the dead. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he is marked as one who shows mercy to those in need, mercy to the sinner, mercy to the helpless. It is an action beyond justice and beyond the law. It is grace. And so part of understanding, though, mercy, especially in contrast to greed, is that mercy affirms and recognizes cost. Greed wants no cost. Think about this. When we act in a way that we want to grab more or that we want to hold what we have, we don't want any cost to be upon us. We don't want to pay or to give, but mercy is to forgive debts that are real, debts that must be paid. At its core, that's what mercy is talking about, not just telling us that it's okay, it's no big deal, but mercy going beyond justice means it does not undercut it. If I forgive you a $100 debt that you owe me, what does it mean? It means that I must use $100 of my own money to cover that debt, to forgive it. One pays for it himself or herself. One must expect that mercy costs us something. But unlike greed or the collection of money, mercy, while costly, is offered as blessing in life. Here again is the paradox of Jesus' beatitudes. They thought that if we grab things or take hold of things or purchase more things, then we'll be secure. He says that is a false path. But actually, when we bear the cost of mercy, we will find life and blessing. Having contrasted greed and mercy, I want us to take a second half of our sermon to look at the story that Jesus tells in Matthew 18. In particular, to see the connection that Jesus is making between God's mercy and our giving mercy. Maybe you notice, as I read, that before the story, Peter comes up and asks Jesus a question. Basically, the question that Peter asks is, how many times do I have to forgive my fellow Christian or another person in my life? How, how, you know, we can all relate to this. 
How many times do I have to forgive this person who keeps doing things that hurt me? He asks seven times. It seems pretty good, right? Seven times. But Jesus pushes him further, and depending on the translation, either 77 times or seven times seven, 70 times seven. Either way, the, the image that Jesus is using, the number there is to say it is continual. Continual. Beyond counting. Jesus is inviting, before he tells the story, he's acknowledging to you and to me and expecting that we will sin against one another. That his people are not perfect, that we continue in our broken ways and hurt one another. And so he's expecting that sin will be part of his people, but also that forgiveness and mercy will be the marks in the midst of that hurt and sin. And so he tells Peter and us this story, usually called the unmerciful servant. And Jesus tells it in three brief scenes. Do you notice there's three movements? The first one opening with the king who decides to settle his many accounts with his servants, with the stewards who oversee his land. And in the process, a servant who comes who owes 10,000 talents. Now, 10,000 talents is millions and millions and millions of dollars. Some scholars estimate that that was beyond the number of talents that were part of the circulation of Jesus' day in his context. He selects a number here, <clears throat> not as a literal number, but as a way to give us a picture of a debt beyond any hope. Do you know that feeling? Like, there is no way this can be repaid. There is no way I can begin to make this right. It's beyond comprehension, and the servant's foolishness. Therefore, the servant's guilt, his poor handling of what he was supposed to take care of, all of that is laid bare for all to see and for him to feel it. He has come face to face with his bad choices, face to face with his debt. Now he's feeling the consequences for him, his wife, and his children. He can't pay. So he and his family and all that he has will be sold. And the response The servant falls on his knees and begs the king, King, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. Who knows how that could possibly happen, but he's begging for help, for time. And you see the story. Jesus says the king sees the man, hears the man, has pity, or is moved to mercy. The king does more than give extra time He releases the servant, fully forgiving the debt. The king has the right to judge this servant, but he freely chooses to give mercy. And if we picture this first scene, think of the far-ranging impact, the far-ranging effect of this king's mercy, bringing freedom to the servant, lifting his head, this sense of forgiveness, a lack of burden upon him, not just for him, but he and his family. Nothing hanging over his head, a restored relationship with the king, affecting all other relationships with his family, with himself, with his work, with his fellow servants. Here is a place in the story that you and I are invited to enter in, to think of what that would be like to have something that's overwhelming you, that's hanging over you, that you can't stop but think about it. It interrupts your joy, interrupts your plans, interrupts whatever it is happening in your relationships, and suddenly it is removed. We're invited to identify and think, do we know the type of freedom 
that this servant has experienced? Do we know the mercy that is being described in this scene? The story moves to a second scene, and for on his way home, the forgiven servant encounters another servant, a peer, who owes him money. It's not 10,000 talents, kind of this number beyond comprehension. It's 100 denarii. In this case, 100 denarii would be maybe about two months' wages. So it's still significant, but nothing compared to what the king has forgiven. The forgiven servant violently grabs the one who owes him the money and demands it right away. What happens? The man who owes the 100 denarii falls down and begs, have patience with me and I will pay you. We're to see that there is a parallel response, a parallel reaction, just as the forgiven servant before the king falls and asks for time. So now this peer, this fellow servant, asks for time as well. And while his response parallels the servant's begging, the response of the forgiven servant does not follow the king's. The forgiven servant does not show mercy. He does not even show patience. He throws his fellow servant into prison until the debt can be paid. Do you feel it? The story has gone horribly wrong. Right? It's like, uh, I was trying to think of an analogy, like singing along a song that you enjoy singing and all of a sudden the wrong notes are played. Something out of tune all of a sudden interrupts the joy of what was being sung. Do you feel how wrong it is? Jesus is the master storyteller and he wants this story, to, us to feel the momentum's moving one way, but it breaks suddenly another direction. We expect the surprising, amazing mercy of the king to direct the rest of the story. The movement, the giving of mercy is broken by the forgiven servant's greed. By his greed for the hundred denarii. It's a chance for us to reflect on how greed can interrupt, can be a barrier to the mercy that we've received. It's a greed when it infects our hearts, when it becomes the way that we see ourselves or the world, this holding or always seeking more. It infects every part of your life. This is just a fact of how greed works. We begin to use the questions, will this be profitable? Will it cost me Or will it bring me something? These questions become the ruling questions of how we judge others, how we evaluate relationships, how we think about what's a good job or not a good job, how we spend our time, or even how we see ourselves. Do you know the story of Midas, King Midas? It's an ancient Greek story about a king who lived in luxury in a great castle. He shared his life of abundance with his beautiful daughter. And even though Midas was very rich, had all that he desired, he longed for more. When given a wish, Midas wished that everything I touch would turn to gold. So he extended his arm after making the wish and touched a small table, and it suddenly turned to gold. And he jumped with happiness, and he runs through his castle, the story goes, touching a chair, the carpet, the door, the bathtub, everything. Suddenly beyond his comprehension, he is rich even beyond what he was before. 
Maybe you know the story, but then his beloved daughter enters the room, and Midas goes to hug her in his excitement, and she is turned into a golden statue. And in such a moment, Midas sees the foolishness of his ways. His greed has transformed not just his castle, but has now just transformed his daughter and destroyed his life, leaving an empty castle full of golden objects. Here's a story that tells us about how greed works. When we grasp for more, when we hold for more, it will impact even our relationships in personal terms, separating us causing us to disregard our family, disregard relationships that are important, disregard our time, our priorities, our choices, because they begin only to be viewed through what it will bring to us or what it will cost us. It's not just in personal terms. We can think of social terms as well. The vice of greed has always been connected with the disregard, the disregard for justice. In our pursuit of more, We may find ourselves or our society embracing or being willing to lie, to deceive, to manipulate, to steal. Justified by it will bring us what we want, securing more things. Greed leads to favoritism, leads to partiality, can lead us to a refusal to speak the truth. We know this, right? Economics can lead all of a sudden to people being silent in the face of prejudice, abuse, racism, bullying, cruelty. It can lead to people not paying a fair wage. It leads to the calls for justice. I don't want to limit my ability to gather more or put it at risk. The history of the church in America sadly knows what it is to hold on to greed and not hold on to convictions. In our own country, we can see the refusal to acknowledge personhood or value to all. We see that in our history because of our addiction to economic growth or prosperity or slave labor. The river of mercy seeks to flow. The river of mercy seeks to flow through the story, but even God's people, the church, can at times be a barrier or a dam to what the river is moving. The forgiven servant lacks mercy, and it should shock us. Jesus wants us to feel the clanging of the note that's out of key. But if we're unclear, if we're not so certain how to respond, we just have to look at the scene, look at the response of the fellow servants who are watching. They are distressed. They are greatly distressed. They're horrified. And it moves to the third and final scene of Jesus' story between the king and the forgiven servant who was not merciful. Upon hearing the report, the king is greatly displeased. He calls the servant in and judges the actions. You wicked servant. I canceled all the debt of yours. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had it on you? Just as I had it on you. As you received mercy, you should have shown mercy. The king acts beyond the law. He acts beyond justice. He gives grace. He gives mercy. And this is the way his people are to be, to act just as I had acted towards you. The Talmud is a collection of rabbinical writings from around 200 to 500 A.D. It's 
It's a collection of kind of oral tradition and different stories, and one of the stories tells about going through life, walking through the world with two slips of paper, one for each pocket. The rabbi writes, saying that on one slip of paper you should write, for me the world was created. And on the other slip, I am dust and will return to dust. In one pocket you can remember your significance before God, made by God in God's image, called to be God's steward of his creation and of his good gifts. And the other slip reminds us of our mortality, our limitations, and our sin. I mentioned that idea of holding things that are true as we wander through life because you and I know that we live in a culture that tells us day in and day out that we can be measured by our money and our possessions. We're told all the time that things will be better, that you'll be more secure, that life will go the way you want if you hold on to a certain amount or you can take hold and purchase more things. And these voices will speak and we need things to disrupt them. We can remember our creation, we can remember our fallenness before God, and we can also remember, I suggest, some other slips of paper that we could put in our pockets, that we've been redeemed, redeemed in God's mercy. I think Romans tells us Christ died for the ungodly. Second Corinthians says that Jesus, the one who was rich, became poor, that he might make those who were poor rich. And in Titus we hear, God saved you and me, not by righteous deeds we have done, but according to his mercy. I encourage you to hold on to those truths, to hold on to them in your pockets, in your heart, for they will disrupt the voices that tell you you are what you make or what you have. God acts first in love and mercy, and our love and mercy is a response to his actions towards us in Jesus. And when we open ourselves to God's mercy, when we open ourselves to his help, it moves us to open ourselves to others. But when we close ourselves to God's mercy, it moves us to close ourselves in pride to others. God invites us to give as he has given to us. This can be overwhelming as we think about mercy. And so I encourage you that if there are times when it is overwhelming to think about what's before you, to talk to your fellow brother or sister in Christ about how mercy can work in your life. To talk to me or to another leader or a counselor about what mercy could look like, especially in the face of hurt or mistreatment. But Jesus offers us a way, a way of mercy, a way of being in this world. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for who you are. We thank you that you're good and gracious to us. We thank you for your mercy. We pray, Lord, that it would flow into our lives and into our hearts. Lord, I pray that prayer of thanks for the gospel, that you saw us in our sin and our brokenness and moved towards us with mercy, beyond justice, beyond the law, that we may find rest in you. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.